When people see you, what do they see? When people look into your life, into your actions, when they hear your words, when they look upon your relationships and the way that you work with others, what do they see? When people see you, what do they see? This is a question that requires us to go back to the beginning. And for those of you who call Desert Springs your church home, I'm glad you're here today. Today is a pivotal moment for our church. And it's tethered to that question. When people see me, what do they see? For those of you who are here, you're still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, or maybe you're our guest here today. I'm glad you're here. You picked a great Sunday to check us out. We're going to talk about the core, the thing that binds us together. Today, we're going to talk about what we as a church are all about. And also, added bonus, I'm probably going to yell at some Christians today. When people see you, what do they see? In order to answer, we have to go back to the beginning. And some of you may be familiar with the beginning. The scripture reads, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And as the crowning glory of his creation, he makes people. The scripture reads, in the image and likeness of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, which means that every person has inherent dignity, worth, and value. You have value. It's given to you not by the things that you've done, or the things that you possess, but your creator has defined you. And we were made for unity and communion with God and with one another. But we chose to take God off the throne of our hearts and to place ourselves on the throne. We've made everything about us, the almighty me. And God, in his infinite mercy, chose not to destroy his errant creation. But instead, he began a mighty work of redemption, a way to reunite, a way to redeem the relationship between rebellious humanity, fallen fallen humanity, and holy God. And in this mighty work of creation that he has been working through the corridors of human history, we catch glimpses of it. There was a time where God called a person named Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a people. And out of you, Abraham, I will make a people that will bless all the nations. I will make you into a nation to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so God was about that business. And he grew this people, but they had no place to call home. In fact, they were in captivity The Egyptians held them captive, as you've read about perhaps in the book of Exodus, or maybe you've seen the movie. And God redeemed his people as they cried out to him, an act of redemption. And as they left Egypt, that migrant caravan wandering around the desert, God would speak to them. God would reveal himself in certain ways. And in fact, God instructed them to build a tabernacle, which is basically an ornate tent. 
and his presence would dwell in the tabernacle amidst the people. So if you wanted to see God, you knew where you could go. You could go to tabernacle. But the people grew, and they became a nation. And at the height of power, under the rule of this great, famous king, King David, they had military power and political power. They had financial wealth. They were powerful. And it was under uh, the reign of David's son that you see a temple being built, a temple, a permanent structure, like the tabernacle which would move around. The temple would be stationary, and there it would be. And if you wanted to see God, the one true God, you knew where to go. You'd go to temple. And so the tabernacle gave way to the temple. But even at the height of their power, tasting, as it were, the Lord's many blessings, the heart of the people turned corrupt, turning each to their own way, focusing on their own desires, on their own preferences, on their own advancement at the expense of all others. And it was during this season of rebellion that they became captives once more, and the kingdom fell. First, it was the Babylonians. Then, it was the Persians. Then, it was the Greeks. And finally, the Romans. And it was under the Roman captivity that there were rumors going around. Remember, when God said he would make us into a great people so that we could bless all the peoples of the earth, remember the promises of God to redeem and to save his people. And the expectation was at a fever pitch on that first Christmas day when the angel said, good news, a savior has come and his name is Christ the Lord. But it was curious because the message did not predominantly go to the power brokers, the princes and the priests. The message was given to the poor and the foreigner and the shepherd and the magi from the east. Shortly after that first Christmas, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to temple because temple is where you went if you wanted to see God. And there at temple, they made a, a, a sacrifice, an offering, as was their custom. And the gospel records that the offering that they gave was two doves. Now, it's interesting that we would have that recorded, but one of the things that this tells us is that Jesus' family was of meager means. For if you could afford it, you would take one of the animals from the flock, a lamb or a goat. But Jesus' family could not afford such things. You see, if Jesus was born today, he'd be attending a Title I school. Years later, one of the very few glimpses we get into Jesus' childhood, we see that Jesus' parents once again had gone to temple Jesus was maybe about 12. And they couldn't find him. And they're looking all around. And then finally they discover him. He's at the temple. And here Jesus, 12 years old, is approached by his parents, his family. And they say, where were you? And he says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Now the interesting thing about my father's house is this. 
If you're, especially in this culture, the son of the father, who gets the rights to the house? You were looking for me in my father's house. And it was even more curious because as he grew, Jesus went around this Middle Eastern region and he was calling people to follow him. And of course, remember, the people, they were waiting for a Messiah, a promised one, the one who would come and redeem the people and reestablish the kingdom. But Jesus came and instead of recruiting soldiers, he went up to the poor and the outcast and the weird and he said, you, Follow me and be my, not soldier, what? Disciple. See, a disciple is someone who lives like the one that they're following. A disciple is someone who not only learns, but is empowered by the one because they're in relationship with. Jesus says, come, enter into relationship with me. Live not as my soldier. Live as my disciple. Follow me. And they left their jobs and followed him. But how would this Messiah take over and reestablish the kingdom? Very bizarre. And it was right around one of those holidays where everyone's gathering around the temple. In fact, it was a season of Passover, a remembering of God's redemption from Egypt. That Jesus chose to ride into town like the Babylonian princes before him and the Persian generals and the Greek kings and the Roman guard before him. You see, they had wandered, wa excuse me, they had walked into Jerusalem triumphantly because they had slain their enemies and they had conquered. So it was really weird when Jesus rides into town, similar to those people, but with no army behind him. Now, the nationalistic tendencies of those in the crowd are revealed in the song that they sang as Jesus approaches. They sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. You see, those who were singing were singing songs of national triumph their kingdom would be established and the Romans would be slain. And we will get back to our power like when David was in charge. But Jesus did something really weird. He rolled into town and instead of going to the palace, he went to the temple. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem. We celebrate this day on Palm Sunday because they were waving palm branches around and laying them at his feet. And as the donkey crunched the palm branches underneath his feet and he approached the temple, the day was drawing to a close and he looked. It may well have been that all of the activity around temple had ceased for the day was closing. But what he could see were tables of commerce and corruption. You see, he approached the outer courts because there it was, the temple. And if you wanted to meet God, you went to where? Not the tabernacle anymore. You went to temple. 
And the temple was constructed in such a way that there were outer courts that anyone could come, anyone, regardless of background. Anyone could come, regardless of brokenness. Anyone could come, regardless of burden. Anyone could come and find God. But there in the outer courts, not in the inner sanctum where the religious power brokers were, but there in the outer courts, they had set up shop, a marketplace of corruption. You see, these money changers and business uh, dealings, what, what would happen is they would take advantage of those coming to find God, many of whom couldn't read. And so in the money exchange, there was often a little bit of this. There was corruption. They would say, you can't bring that sacrifice in here from your own flock. You need to buy this one. And of course, it's marked up like hot dogs at a ballpark, but insidious and evil. For these people had come to find God. They were the outsider. They were from different backgrounds, different brokenness, different burdens. And they had come, and the religious establishment had allowed for their preferences to trump over what God had called them to do. And so it was very strange that Jesus turned around and left. In fact, he left the city. And then the text says this, that on the next morning, in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, we can put it up on the screen, then they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling what? Oh, that's interesting that you bring that up. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he was teaching them, is it not written, watch what he does, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for whom? All nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. You see, God has been doing this redemptive work all the way back even with Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. You wanna to go to find God, where do you go? You go to temple. It's meant to be by God a house of prayer for whom? The insiders? Just those that are like me? It's a house of prayer for who? all nations. Let's go back to the first text. I want you to notice this. There's only two types of commerce specifically mentioned here that Jesus flips over the tables of. The first is whom? The money changers. And the second is those who are selling what? Doves or pigeons. This is absolutely conjecture but it may well be that that's the same table that Jesus' mama bought those doves that she sacrificed when they brought baby Jesus to temple. You see, Jesus knows what it is to be the victim of societal and systemic evil. Jesus associates himself with the lowly. The God of the universe took on flesh in a family of meager means. It is likely that he is remembering the one who sold his mom and dad-in-law, uh, stepdad, 
those two doves. You see, it's the ones who he names here, the ones that are taking advantage, not only the outsider, but also the poor. And what does he do? A violent act. Take a look at the next slide. He's flipping over tables and driving them out. In one of the greatest ironies, you see this. He was what? What was he doing? He was teaching them. Now, I don't think this is a sit-down type of teaching. I think this is like how my dad used to teach me a lesson. (laughs) But he was teaching them. And he says, is it not written, whose house does he say? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, the ones in charge, the ones who were in, had allowed these tables of corruption to set up shop so that when people went to find God, they didn't see God, they saw tables. When people see you, what do they see? It was shortly after this moment that Jesus was flipping over these tables, that the religious establishment, the power brokers, finally executed their plot to have him killed. And he was betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And he was beaten. And he was mocked and scorned. And they crucified him between two thieves. He was a threat to their comfort and their way of life. They had grown accustomed to having their own preferences, their own perspectives, their own opinions elevated over that of the others. And there on the cross, with one of his last breaths, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. And at that, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And there in that moment, Jesus made a way for rebellious, fallen men and women to be brought into right relationship with their creator. Just as the tabernacle had given way to the temple, so too the temple gave way to Jesus. You want to see God? You look at Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said, you will tear down this temple and in three days I will build it again. And he wasn't referring to stones upon stones. He was referring to himself. And he died. And they buried him. And if the story ends there, then we're all stupid. And this is a complete waste of time. But he did not stay in the grave. Three days later, on that Sunday, that first Easter, he rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. That is why we sing. That is why we pray. That is why we look to Jesus to shape our lives. That is why we follow him. And before ascending into heaven, Jesus launched something. The church. And just as the tabernacle gave way to the temple, and the temple gave way to Jesus. If you want to see God, you look upon Jesus. But how is it that we see Jesus? We look at his body. 
You see, the church is called many things. The family of God. The household of God. Remember, Jesus said, my house, the church, is called the household of God. Now, when I say the church, I don't mean this building. This building can come and go. This building is not the church. The church is the disciples of Jesus. It's us. The body of Christ. How do you see God? You look upon Jesus. How do you see Jesus? You look at his body. This is interesting to me. In Ephesians 2, it teaches us this. I'd like for you to listen. Speaking of the church, Ephesians 2 says this. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple. Wait, what did I just say? What are we being built into? A holy what? You see, if you wanted to see God first, you'd go to the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle gave way to the temple. And then the temple pointed us to Jesus. And then Jesus started his church, the body of Christ. In fact, the scripture reads that you and you and you and you and you are a temple of God's spirit. When people see you, what do they see? The church is meant to live as the body of Christ. That when people would see the church, when they would see us, they would see Christ in community. They would see Jesus. When people would come to a, a church gathering, a barbecue, or a bar, or a worship service, that they would see Jesus in his church. The role of the church is not to point to itself but to point to Jesus. When people see you, who do they see? And I believe that God is calling us to a fresh new expression of this mission that he's had us on as a church for 41 years. But I also know that before he does a work through us, he wants to do a work on us. As your pastor, it pains me to say that we have allowed tables to set up shop in God's house. We've allowed for some sin, some corruption, to set up booths so that when people see our church family, they see the tables and not the Lord. I know that for me, as I've been studying this gospel of Mark with you over these many weeks, it's become painfully clear to me that my pride has been blocking people's view of God. Instead of seeing Jesus, they see me. You see, I, 
I get mad at you a lot. I don't know if you know that. In my dark moments, I'm mad that you're not inviting more friends, not because I care about them coming to Jesus, but because a packed house makes me feel really good. And I get to brag about it to my friends. I think I'm better than most of you most of the time. I sit in judgment on you in my dark moments, wondering why you're not doing what I say. In my dark moments, I judge the success of what happens here at Desert Springs, not by our faithfulness to Jesus, but by the metrics that a capitalistic, consumeristic culture has embedded in my heart. How many butts are in seats and how much money we get in. And I confess that to you. And I confess it to God. And I repent of it. I turn from it and I turn to Jesus. I've been in the process of doing that for the last six weeks. And Jesus is so good. He's so good. I know he's not mad at me. He's not shaming me. But he's there with open arms, with the power and the love and the grace that he promises. But nonetheless, as his disciple, he calls me to turn from my sin and turn to him. As one great theologian said, all of life is repentance. I've grown comfortable with my pride. I've allowed it to set up shop in my heart and has distorted people's view of Jesus. What about you? Maybe for some of us, it's not pride that's set up shop in our house. Maybe for some of us, it's selfishness using everything at our disposal simply to please ourselves. And our selfishness is distorting others' view of God. When people see you, do they see Jesus or do they see something else? For others, it's not selfishness, it's inhospitality. We hear Jesus consistently calling us to live generously, open hearts, open homes, open hands. And yet we've grown cold towards our neighbor. And we've shut our doors and we've shut our hearts. For others of us, it's not inhospitality, it's jealousy. We look at what others have and we're so jealous. And it's corrupting our witness to the gospel. We've made what we live for about what they have and what I need, not about who God is and who I am in Christ. And for others of us, it's gossiping. We've used our words to murder the character of others, to malign them, to slam them, to diminish them so that we can look good. What's set up shop in your heart? For others of us, it's consumerism. We think that the next thing that we buy will finally make us happy, will finally satisfy us. If we could just get that thing, then I'll be somebody. For others of us, it's envy, corollary to consumerism. If I could just have what they have, if I could just have that position, if I could just have that power, have we allowed envy to set up shop in our hearts? For others of us, it's greed. We have turned to our bank accounts or our possessions and they have become idols. And perhaps it's not just greed, but it's idolatry. We have made something, some created thing, the center of our lives. It keeps us up at night. It's the things that we dream about. It's the things that we focus on. And maybe for some of us it's not idolatry, but it's it's bigotry. You see, his house is meant to be a house for whom? All people, regardless of background, brokenness, or burden. 
but there's those people that we don't want to be around. Or finally, it's apathy. We hear Jesus call, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, that I might bless them, that they might be called my own. Apart from me, they are dying. (sighs) Whatever. We've grown apathetic. We hear these calls of Jesus and we love reciting them in our Bible studies, but we do nothing to answer the call of Christ in our lives. The radical, self-sacrificing call of discipleship has become bland. We've become bored. We've become comfortable. Friends, I don't know where you're at. And I don't know what's set up shop in your heart. But I don't know if you're anything like me. It may be one of these. It may be something that didn't make the list. But what are the tables that we've allowed to set up so that when people look on us, they don't see Jesus, they see the tables. This is a moment for us as a church. Don't let it pass you by. Let today be the day that you allow Jesus to enter in and flip over the table. Let today be the day that you say, Jesus, I've been hiding this from you. I've been, I've been, I, 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 I've been unwilling to look at this, Jesus. I'm scared of even opening this room. Let today be the day that you let him in. Let today be the day that you let him flip the table. When people see you, who do they see? We're gonna take a moment now. Uh, In just a moment, we're gonna sing. And during this song, I'm gonna ask that you would sit quietly and reflect. If you're not sure what you think about Jesus, I'm gonna, listen, I know that one of the reasons you may be reticent is because someone who follows Jesus has mistreated you. And I'm sorry that that happened. That is not Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to take a chance, to take a risk. And right now in this moment, would you pray that God would reveal himself to you? You wanna see God? Look to Jesus. He is faithful and true. For those of you that follow after Jesus as his disciples, for those of you that call Desert Springs your church home especially, I'm gonna ask that right now that you would ask the Lord to shine a light in those corridors of your heart where the tables have set up shop. Just quietly now, you don't need to say anything to anybody, but speak to the Lord in the quietness of your heart. Lord, would you show me what I've grown comfortable with? Would you reveal it to me, the idols that are in my life? And Lord, I confess that to you, and I repent. I turn from this, and I turn back to you. And as we pray this, know this. There is nothing, there is nothing that you can do to make him love you anymore. This is not about manipulation or shame. This is a heart's response to God's grace, love, and mercy for you. Would you take this moment? Don't let this moment pass you by. Let today be the day that you let him flip over the table. All the way my Savior leads me
Jesus loves you so much. And he empowers you to live as his disciple. I believe that this is something that God is doing in our church right now. We're 41 years old. We're middle-aged. And as can happen in middle age, we can grow comfortable with certain besetting sins. For 41 years, Jesus has used Desert Springs to point to him and to serve and minister to this community and those around the world. And we have a choice to make. There are two paths we can go down. One is the path of comfort One is the path of ease. One is the path that will make your selfish desires flourish. We can be a moderately successful, dying church that focuses on itself. And then we can close up shop, call it a day. Or... The other path, the uncomfortable path, the path that requires sacrifice, the path that nobody wants to go down on their own, the path to a cross, the way of Jesus. Church, which path will we go down? I believe that Jesus is doing a work on us to prepare us so he can do a work through us. And I wish I knew what that was. You see, throughout the corridors of time, there has been occasion where God would pick a person, and then he would call that person up a mountain, and then he would tell that person what's up, and then that person would go back to all the people and tell them what's up. I wish I was that guy. I ain't that guy. The other thing that I know is this, is I'm not the leader of this church. I'm not the head of this church. Jesus is. This is his body. This is not my organization. You are not my people. But we are a part of the same family. And Jesus is the boss. So here's what I'm asking us to do. We're gonna spend some time talking to the boss. I'm gonna ask today that you would commit to four weeks of unified, expectant prayer. Unified and expectant prayer. Unified. One of the things that we are going to do is starting tomorrow, we are going to send out uh, text messages so that we can be a people who pray in unity. We're going to pray the same prayer. You are free to pray more than just the thing that we send out. But we want to be a people who pray in unity. And so right now, you can get out your phones. And if you're worried about me judging you and you don't want to do it, just fake it. Just pull out your phone and fake it. That's fine. You can text DSBC to 55222. Now, maybe you're not in a position to use your phone in this way. Totally fine. We do have some print copies available uh, out in the lobby, and you're free to grab one of those. But I would encourage you, for those of you who are in a position to use your phone in this way, to sign up for this. One of the reasons is, is that it will buzz all of us at the same time. And will give us an opportunity to stop what we're doing and to pray in unity. And so we're going to commit to four weeks of 
unified prayer. We're going to pray Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday on our own. If you're in a, a, a missional community, I encourage you to pray in your groups. And then Saturday we'll take off, and then Sunday we will start fresh praying together as a congregation. Unified prayer and expectant prayer. Now, I wouldn't need to say this if we were a charismatic church. And most of the time, I wish we were a little more charismatic. But we're going to pray expecting to hear from God. We're going to listen. I have no idea what way our Savior is leading us. But I know this. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to involve people ministering to people that I don't like. It's going to get in my business. It's going to kick down the doors that I have put up and the walls that I've put up around certain areas of my heart. I believe that the direction that he's calling us to will only be attained through radical faith in an awesome God. This is not a path that we would choose on our own power, nor is this a path that we would be able to accomplish on our own power. I don't know what it is, but I know those things are true. And so I'm gonna ask you, church family, to commit to four weeks of prayer. And you can do that again, texting in DSBC to 55222. Which of the two ways are we going? If you call Desert Springs your church family, I'm gonna ask you to consider that. Which of the two paths do you wanna go down? Do you want to go down the path of comfort or the path of a cross? The way of ourselves or the way of Jesus? I don't want to, but I'm going to. I want to pursue Jesus, even if it means a cross. And I want you to go with me. Would you join me as we pray right now, please?